The following message was preached at Gospel City Church, a church that seeks to cast a gospel net for the people of Kuala Lumpur. Who flipped over to Instagram during the long reading of names? You don't have to, you don't have to raise your hand. Oh wait, somebody did raise their hand. <laughs> yeah, I, whenever we were trying to think through whether or not we should read this passage as a church, we decided that we are under, oh, children, it is time to go to Sunday school. <laughs> Have fun, children. See you later. Yay. All right. We decided that it is best for us to continue with our practice of reading every passage as a church because the Bible teaches very clearly that all scripture is God-breathed. And therefore, God's inspiration is just as much in Ezra 2 as in John 3.16 or other passages that you may know well. Well, good morning, church. My name is Kyle, and I am one of the elders here at Gospel City Church. Last week, we had a wonderful message as Andy finished up the, our study through the Gospel of Matthew with the Great Commission. Today, as you have picked up, we are beginning a new series on the book of Ezra Nehemiah called A City Restored. Now, you might wonder, first and foremost, why is Kyle referring to Ezra and Nehemiah as one book? You see, the reason is that the two books in our English or Chinese or Tamil Bibles, well, they are called Ezra and Nehemiah in our modern Bibles, but this practice of splitting them into two books only occurs commonly after the 13th century after Christ. So 1,300 years after Christ, people started splitting up Ezra and Nehemiah regularly into two books. But in all of our ancient manuscripts, whether it's in Hebrew or Greek translation or Aramaic or Syriac translation, it's always one book called Ezra. And so we are going to spend 10 weeks looking through this book, Ezra Nehemiah. Now, I need to set the stage for where we are at in terms of history. You may not be as familiar with the book of Ezra Nehemiah. And so let me, let me tell you a brief history so that you can place where we're at. So let's start at the beginning. The beginning. God made the world good. He created humans as part of his good world, but they chose to rebel against God and his goodness. They caused sin to come into the world, and that sin corrupted every aspect of God's good creation. But you see, God is a God of redemption. God desired to redeem humanity, and so he originally chose one man, Abraham, and promised that through this man's family, he would bless all the families of the earth. He promised to Abraham and to his family both a dominion and a dynasty. He said that 
He loved them. And even whenever Abraham's family went away from the land where he had placed them and they became slaves in Egypt, God was so gracious and good that he redeemed them from their slavery in Egypt. He brought them into a good land. And before he brought them into this good land, he gave them good laws because he is a good and gracious and loving God. But God's people continued to rebel against God's good laws and they chose their own ways. Beginning in 1050 before Christ, 1050 BC, God gave them kings. He had promised them kings long before, but at this point he gave them kings beginning with King Saul. But these kings were often rebellious against God. They also chose their own ways instead of God's ways. So God graciously sent prophets such as Isaiah, Jeremiah, or Ezekiel to warn them, but they wouldn't listen. And so in 722 BC, God judged the northern kingdom of Israel, and they were exiled across Assyria. From 605 until 587 BC, God judged the southern kingdom of Judah, removed the people from their land, destroyed their temple, and exiled them to Babylon. Now, this was a gracious judgment from the Lord because the Lord sought to bring them to repentance. He judged them in hopes that they would return to him. And so this morning, as we look at Ezra 1 and 2, the people are in exile. Our book begins about 50 years after the temple in Jerusalem had been destroyed and the last group of exiles had been removed from the city. As I already mentioned, from 605 until 587 BC, a series of forced migrations removed people from the cities of Judah and placed them in various locations across the Babylonian Empire. But even before the forced migrations began, much of Judah had been destroyed. Much of it had been ravaged. For almost 100 years prior, it had been a vassal state under Assyria, Egypt, or now Babylon. In each of these forced migrations, homes were destroyed, fields were burned, goods were stolen. Now, Imagine that you are a 15-year-old. Might be hard for some of us. Might be easier for some. Imagine that you are a 15-year-old. You were born in Babylon. You work in your parents' store, which they founded. Your grandparents live with you and help with the store. Your parents are in their late 30s, and your grandparents are in their late 50s and early 60s. Your parents, they were all born in Babylon as well. Your grandparents were either born in Babylon 
or they were brought to Babylon whenever they were so young that they don't even remember what Judah was like. You see, 80, 90 years ago, your great-grandparents had homes, fields, and businesses in Judah, but they were all destroyed by the Babylonians. Like everyone else in Babylon, you speak Aramaic. Your ancestors spoke Hebrew, and you know enough for, you know, the annual festivals, for the religious ceremonies, but you can't really hold a conversation in Hebrew. Now, God had spoken through the prophet Jeremiah to your great-grandparents' generation, and he had told them to seek the welfare of the city to which they will be exiled. Your family did. And your family is doing okay. Babylon is your home. It's all you know. But imagine that you also attend synagogue every week. The leader of the synagogue reminds you of promises God made long ago, very long ago. He promised an eternal kingdom under a righteous king in the promised land. You're not in the promised land. The synagogue leader regularly reminds the congregation that the reason your great-grandparents had to leave the promised land was because of their rebellion against God. You have heard it repeated frequently, the words of Deuteronomy 28, verse 64, quote, And the Lord will scatter you among all peoples, from one end of the earth to the other, and there you shall serve other gods of wood and stone, which neither you nor your fathers have known, end quote. But the synagogue leader would also highlight God's promises and God's promised restoration. He also will frequently read from Deuteronomy chapter 30, which begins like this, quote, and when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, and you return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice in all that I command you today with all your heart and with all your soul, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you. And he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you, end quote. If you and your people return to the Lord, he will restore you to the promised land. Your life in Babylon is okay, but the promises of restoration far exceed anything that you experience now. You only know Babylon. But you long for something more, something better, something that has been promised. You long for a restored city. You long for Jerusalem. You see, in Ezra 1 and 2, we see that God fulfills his promises and orchestrates a return for his people to the promised land. Brothers and sisters, I believe that we also are longing for something more. We live here in Kuala Lumpur. We live here in PJ or in Subang. And we seek the welfare of our city. But we long for a restored city. 
You see, in this series, something that we want to emphasize is that we should yearn for the new Jerusalem, seek renewal in our world today, but rest in knowing that only Christ can and will make all things new. So let's look together at Ezra 1 and 2 this morning. This morning's message has two points from the two chapters. In the first chapter, we see that the Lord stirs people's hearts. And then in the second chapter, we see that God's people look forward by looking back. So let's look together at the first portion of our passage where we see that the Lord stirs hearts. Now, the passage has already been read to us, but I hope you have your Bible open so that you can look in the text throughout this morning's message. You see, the key statement in chapter one is that the Lord stirred. Now, these are historical events. Cyrus, the king of Persia, rose to power over Persia in 559 BC. He conquered the kingdoms of Medea, Lydia, and Elam. In 539 BC, he took over the city of Babylon without even a fight. Thus, Ezra Nehemiah begins like a typical historical narrative by presenting the historical setting of its message. With the defeat of Babylon, Cyrus has now become the king over all of the ancient Middle East. In the first year of his reign over this huge region, which would have been around 538 BC, he makes a proclamation. But brothers and sisters, Cyrus is not the key character of this chapter. The Lord is the key character. This is not only an historical narrative, but this is God's redemptive history. You see, behind the scenes of history, God works, and God has stirred up Cyrus's heart. He has also stirred up the people's hearts so that they will respond. Ezra 1 emphasizes that the story of Cyrus and God's people is really the story of God's work in history. Notice that the Lord stirs up both the king's and the people's hearts. Notice when the Lord stirs up Cyrus's heart, Cyrus responds. Look in your passage, or in the passage. Cyrus notes first that the Lord has given him all the kingdoms of the earth. Second, that the Lord has appointed him to rebuild the temple. Third, that any Israelites may return and assist in this project. And fourth, that the neighbors of the Israelites across Babylon should support them and help provide towards the project. Consider the radical change that has happened. Only 50 years before this, the Babylonian emperor, Nebuchadnezzar, had destroyed Jerusalem, including its temple. He had exiled God's people. But the new emperor, the Persian emperor, Cyrus, provides both for the, for the temple's restoration and for the people's return. 
Notice in our passage that the Lord not only stirs up Cyrus's heart, but he also stirs up the hearts of the people in verse 5. The three groups respond to Cyrus's proclamation in verses 5 through to 11. First, notice how in verse 5, we see that volunteers from both Judah and Benjamin, as well as some priests and Levites, respond. Verse 6 shows us that the neighbors respond by offering valuable items and free will offerings. And then in verses 7 through 11, Cyrus responds beyond his previous response of the proclamation, and he returns the temple items that Nebuchadnezzar had stolen. For them to rebuild the walls of the temple wouldn't be enough. They need the items for inside the temple, those that have been in the temple since the time of the tabernacle, and then since the time of Solomon, these are now returned to them. Nebuchadnezzar had stolen them. And so this chapter makes clear that the Lord has worked behind the scenes of history to enable the people to return to the promised land. The Lord has provided political, re- political support for restoring Jerusalem and people. They have the authority of Cyrus, the king of Persia. The Lord has provided financial support for restoring Jerusalem and its temple. They have both the gifts of Cyrus and their neighbors to accomplish the task. The Lord has provided the people needed to restore Jerusalem and its temple. He has moved in people's hearts so that volunteers from Judah, Benjamin, and Levi will return. And so what we see in verse 1 is true of the entire chapter. From the very beginning of the book, all that has happened has happened because of the Lord's work and so that the Lord will fulfill the promises made through his prophets. Now notice this. It says in verse 1 that the word of the Lord might be, or by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. Which prophecies are being fulfilled in this return. Now, if you know Jeremiah well, which some of you probably do, you immediately think of verses like Jeremiah 25.11. Jeremiah 25.11 said that the exile to Babylon would last for 70 years. Many of you know Jeremiah 29.11. We'll go one verse before that. Verses 10 and 11 promise that it was God's plan to restore his people after 70 years of exile were completed. After preparations and and travel, these returnees would have arrived in Jerusalem exactly 70 years after the first exiles began in 605 B.C. So on the one hand, it's definitely fulfilling this prophecy. But what about Jeremiah 51 verse 1? If you have your Bible, you can flip over to Jeremiah 51 verse 1, where it says that the Lord would stir up the spirit of a destroyer against Babylon. Well, that's what we see here. 
The Lord stirs up the heart of Cyrus, who was the destroyer of Babylon. And so Cyrus fulfills this prophecy from the mouth of Jeremiah. But this also fulfills prophecies from Isaiah, which specifies by name. Hundreds of years before, by name, it specifies that Cyrus would deliver God's people from exile. Isaiah 44 verse 28 calls Cyrus the Lord's shepherd who will please the Lord, rebuild the temple, and restore Jerusalem. And so Ezra 1 verse 1 reminds us that the Lord will fulfill the promises he has made in Scripture. You and I can have confidence in God's word because we know that he is a God who works in history and he is a God who will do what he has said he will do. And so we also see in in chapter 1, that the Lord in his sovereignty, that his sovereignty extends over both unbelievers and believers. During the Exodus, God spoke to Pharaoh, but Pharaoh didn't listen. Yet, yet God still brought about his purposes through Pharaoh's disobedience. At the time of the Babylonian exile, God sovereignly used Nebuchadnezzar to judge his people, destroy Jerusalem and its temple, and to force the people to leave the promised land. It was only after these events that Daniel tells us Nebuchadnezzar turned to the Lord. And now we see that the Lord stirs up Cyrus's heart to restore his people to Jerusalem and to restore its temple. Earlier this week, Ekin pointed out to me that in one sense, Pharaoh and Cyrus are related. Cyrus is almost like an anti-Pharaoh. You see, Cyrus responds to the Lord's work in his heart. But Pharaoh ignored the Lord's words through his representative, Moses. But in both, the Lord brings about his purposes and displays his sovereignty. In another sense, Nebuchadnezzar and Cyrus are related as well. The Lord uses Nebuchadnezzar to bring about his judgment against Israel and now the Lord uses Cyrus to liberate his people, Israel. At the time of these actions, both were unbelievers. Yet in both, the Lord brings about his purposes and displays his glory. We must always remember that we serve a God who works in history and whose authority and sovereignty are above, works above and through even those who do not yet honor him as Lord. So that's what we see in chapter 1. But if we look at chapter 2, we see that God's people look forward by looking back. Now look in your Bibles at chapter 2. Chapter 2 lists all who return to Jerusalem. How does this list function? 
You know, one of our elders, David Lim, he noted that this chapter is almost like a work report that he would get. On the surface, it's just a list of names and numbers. In verses 2 through to 20, this list of names and numbers helped to keep track of families who returned to the promised land. And in verses 2 through to 20, families are listed by descent. The descendants of Parosh, the descendants of Shephatiah, and so on and so forth. Now, I don't want you to assume that these are just men who returned because some of the translations say the sons of so-and-so. That word actually functions inclusively and refers to all the descendants of an individual, both men and women. So there was a group of people, men, women, children, families, who are returning at this time. And so in verses 21 through to 35, people are listed by their hometown. Notice it gives a list of cities and numbers, Bethlehem, Jericho, Anatoth, and so on and so forth. In verses 36 through to 58, people who will serve in and around the temple are listed. In verses 59 to 63, those who don't have proper documents are listed, and it explains that they are still allowed to come with the people of Israel, but they have to wait until later before they are allowed to serve in the temple functions. And finally, the list ends with a list of other items, total numbers, and a summary statement. So on this level, the list functions, you know, to count people. But on another level, this list functions to connect these people to their ancestors. It notes that the families, places, and roles are the ones from which these people came. The list begins with what name? Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel is the royal heir of Judah's last king. It continues with Jeshua, who is a descendant of the last high priest. Now, the next name is Nehemiah. This is a different Nehemiah than chapter 2 or the Nehemiah, or than the second book. Uh, if that was the same Nehemiah, he'd be like 150 years old. And so this is a different Nehemiah. It's just a common name that means the Lord comforts. But those first two names are significant. Zerubbabel, the royal heir, and Joshua, a descendant of the last high priest. But it's doubtful that many of the people in this list had ever lived in Judah. They have no memories of the promised land. They don't remember the siege of Jerusalem, nor do they remember the temple. But this list unites them to their ancestors. It unites them to people who do have those memories. To people who did live in that place and worship at that temple. It unites this generation with their history. And by looking back, they can look forward. By remembering their history, they can find their place in God's redemptive history. Notice the last verse of chapter 2. Let me read it again. 
Now the priests, the Levites, some of the people, the singers, the gatekeepers, and the temple servants lived in their towns, and all the rest of Israel in their towns. Now our list includes people from only three tribes, Benjamin, Judah, and Levi. Israel also included nine other tribes who aren't mentioned, like Ephraim. Other passages in the Bible, as well as other ancient literature, show us that people from the other nine tribes still know their heritage. They still know their lineage. So despite what WhatsApp messages and speculative documentaries might say, there were no lost tribes of Israel. Okay? We see this in passages like Luke chapter 2, verse 36. It reads, quote, And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher, end quote, one of the northern tribes. Yet she knows her lineage, and she's now living amidst God's people in Jerusalem. Yet the list that we have in chapter 2 only includes people from the tribes that made up the ancient kingdom of Judah and the priestly tribe of Levi. But they do not call themselves Judah. They call themselves all Israel. Old Testament scholar Jason Staples says that, quote, when Jews adopted Israelite language, they were identifying with the historical covenant with Israel and with the end times promises of a restored Israel, end quote. Here, as the people look back, they realize God's covenant. They realize their place in God's redemptive history, and they are able to look forward to God's promised restoration. Looking back enables them to look forward in hope. Brothers and sisters, looking back helps us to look forward. I love our family meetings as a church. Whenever we have the opportunity to affirm new covenant partners, think about what we do. The sister or the brother shares their testimony. They share who they were before they knew Jesus and his gospel. They share how Jesus has changed them. And then they share, share who they are now because of the gospel. By looking back, they tell the church what God has done in and through them. And they give us confidence that God will continue to work in them so that we can affirm them as a covenant partner. The process of writing out our personal testimony functions in this same way. As you and I reflect on what God has done in and through us, we can have confidence that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters, I am frequently encouraged for the future by thinking about the past. You know, as I look at our world, I long for change. I don't get happy 
whenever I open up Malaysia Kini, or whenever I look out at the chaos that is happening at times in our city. As I, see, as I seek the welfare of our city, I still recognize the countless ways that sin has corrupted God's good creation. Oppression, exploitation, greed, sexual degeneracy. I long for a restored city. As I think about these things, I long for the promised new Jerusalem. But I can rest because I know what Christ has done. And since I know what Christ has done, I know that he can and will make all things new, just like he promises he will do. So brothers and sisters, let me ask you, church, do you long for a new Jerusalem? You see, the returnees in our passage this morning, they had never lived in Judah. They had never seen the temple. They had not, you know, lived in Jerusalem. They couldn't conceptualize mentally exactly how a restored Jerusalem would look like. Yet they knew God's promises. They knew God's word. They knew the prophecies that had been made through Jeremiah and Isaiah and Ezekiel. They knew and they could see the historical outworkings of the Lord and his redemption in history. The first name in this list is the rightful heir to Judah's throne. They knew that God had promised that a king from the line of David would have an eternal kingdom. And so, as they know their past, as they know God's promises, they can look forward in hope. They hope for a restored kingdom under a righteous king in a land that had been promised to their ancestors where people live under God's righteous and good laws and perfect shalom is had. And so they rise in faith and they return to a broken and a destroyed land, placing their trust in the God who renews and restores. But as we will see in the coming weeks, they quickly face adversity, not only from outsiders, but from insiders. They will quickly fall into the rebellious patterns of their ancestors. But I'll leave that for future weeks of this series. And so this morning, church, I want to ask, can you feel the longing in these first two chapters? Can you feel the excitement, the desire to rise and to go back and to see this restored city? Can you sense their faith as they rise in obedience and they hope to return? I think you can. You see, from a human perspective, most of us can relate. Let me ask a question. How many people in this room have great-grandparents who were born outside of Malaysia? 
the majority, right? Maybe your great-grandparents were born in India, the Middle East, China, the USA, or Europe. Some of us speak the languages and keep the customs of our great-grandparents. Many of us don't. But our identities are shaped by so many things, by culture, parentage, ethnicity, nationality, location of upbringing, and many other factors. And so as we read this story, we can understand the complexities that these exiles in Babylon must have felt. But many of us, if we're being honest, can also understand the longing for a better place and a better life. Some of the people in this room came to Malaysia as refugees. Some of the people in this room as refugees are longing for settlement in a final place that you can now call your new home. Some of you grew up in Malaysia and you love Malaysia, but you still hope to immigrate to Australia, the USA, or the UK. Some of us desire to remain in Malaysia. But as we look at our city, we long for a different city, one that has been renewed by the power of the gospel. So we understand the complexity of their city, or of their situation. We understand their longing for a better city, for a better place. And because of the gospel, the core of these yearnings is good and righteous. You see, the gospel tells us that the world was made good, but it was corrupted by sin and rebellion against God. And so we long for it to be made right. We know in our hearts and from God's word that something is wrong. And we long to see righteousness restored. And so the gospel tells us that God in his great love through Jesus' perfect life, his substitutionary death, and his victorious resurrection, that he has promised us that all things can be redeemed. You see, the gospel reminds us that God has placed churches around the world and in our city as embassies of his kingdom to bring renewal, to seek the welfare of the city, and to proclaim his gospel. And you and I know that because of this gospel, one day Jesus will return, and he will rule over a global kingdom from a new Jerusalem. And so the longings in our heart are good, and they can only be fulfilled through the gospel. So in our passage this morning, God fulfills his promises and he orchestrates a return for his people to the promised land. Through the gospel, God fulfills his promises and orchestrates a place for us in a new heavens and a new earth with a new Jerusalem at its center. It will be a righteous and a restored city with Jesus, our good and gracious king, ruling from its center. 
A few minutes ago, we sang a higher throne. And as we sang a higher throne, we sang these words. And there we'll find our home, our life before the throne. We'll honor him in perfect song where we belong. Through the gospel, we will find what we seek. Identity, peace, and rest with God. Because of the gospel, because of what God has done, we can yearn for the new Jerusalem. We can seek renewal in our world today and we can rest knowing that only Christ can and will make all things new. By looking back at all that Christ has done in the gospel, we can look forward to all that he will do. We can look forward to a restored city, a new Jerusalem under Christ our King. Let's pray. Father God, the worship this morning has been so rich in word and song as we meditate on the truths of your word, as we see the people's longing to return to Jerusalem, to rebuild the temple so that you would dwell in their midst. We know that as we stand here in Kuala Lumpur today, that you are dwelling in our midst by your Holy Spirit. Their longing has been fulfilled in the gospel for us. Yet we still look forward to the day when you will return. When the new heavens and the new earth and the new Jerusalem will be our home. Where there will no longer be a temple because you will be there in the midst of your people forever and ever and ever. Father, I pray if there is anyone in this room who knows this longing but has not yet trusted in Jesus Christ, that today would be the day of their salvation, that you would save them and redeem them. But for those of us who are in Christ, help us to never be satisfied with lesser fulfillments of this longing. Help this longing and this desire to even grow in our hearts as we age and we get closer to the day when we will see it fulfilled through the gospel, whenever we dwell with you forever, fully made right, fully restored, fully dwelling in that restored city. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message. We invite you to learn more about Gospel City Church at gospelcitychurch.my.